Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Jason Isbell, one of the greatest songwriters of his generation, one of the greatest songwriters of the century, and he has a great new album coming out May 25th called Reunions. I love the new album. Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, I'm not tired of it yet, which is good because it hasn't come out yet. (laughs) When you're writing for a new album, are are you writing towards an album or are you just writing songs and then gathering them? How does it work for you? Well, I start off just writing and then you start to see certain themes and uh, sometimes those inspire other songs. Um, I try not to conceptualize it too much because I feel like that can be a distraction for me sometimes. Uh, Usually my job is just to write the best songs that I can write, uh, period. But with that being said, after I got a couple of songs written like uh, Only Children and Overseas, I started thinking, okay, I see what this album could be sonically and and, and topically and right from there. Yeah, it's kind of... Uh there's a certain amount of nostalgia. There's a certain amount of, of hauntedness that pervades at least some of the album and that particularly those two songs. I, I mean, Only Children, who is that about, if you, if you don't mind saying? Uh, it's about a bunch of people. People always ask me, that, who is that about? Is <laughs> it's that about? so specific, that one. Yeah, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't matter, right? Uh, it's about me and it's about you, Brian. It's about all of us. <laughs> <laughs> but it, you know, I'll tell you a little bit of what was going on when I wrote it. I, I was uh, on. This is going to sound so ridiculous. This is like the least Americana thing in the world. But <laughs> I was on the island of Hydra in Greece with uh, my wife and uh, Will Welch, who, who's the editor in chief of GQ magazine, and his wife Heidi, uh, who is a naturalist and herbalist, and we were on the island on vacation and we'd gone there because we were looking at some different islands and uh, my wife is a huge Leonard Cohen fan which I, I am too but but uh, if I said my wife and I were huge Leonard Cohen fans I would be understating the amount of which my wife uh, loves <laughs> Leonard Cohen. So we went to Hedra because that was the place where he first played um, songs for people in public wow. and uh yeah, and in first place where he really wrote anything you want for anybody to hear, he wrote Bird on a Wire when they got uh, telephone lines there. Um, and he was looking out his window, and there was a bird on the telephone line. And, and so we were there, on, and I hadn't I hadn't really started writing the album yet. Um, I hadn't actually thought about it much, but we were all going around, and all four of us being writers, we were reading our work to each other, and it you know, occurred to me that this is just something that doesn't happen so much when you get older and, and you're writing professionally for a living. But when you're a teenager and, you know, you go to somebody's house and, and you smoke a bunch of weed and you sit around in a circle and whatever you've written that week, you you put it out on display for your friends. And there's this sort of magic that happens that you lose when you get uh, bills and mortgages and kids and tours and books and all those things behind you. So I think that song really is... is about the ghost of that as much as anything else. It's, it's a lot of ghosts on the record, and you can't call a record ghosts, you know, and, and I started thinking about what a ghost, what a visit from a ghost really is, and it's actually, it's a reunion, you know, and so all these ghosts became reunions because most of the time when you see a ghost, it's somebody that you've met before. Yeah, I mean, for people who haven't heard the whole song, I asked who Only Children is about because it seems to be about some specific songwriter friend 
from when you were young who who maybe died that's what you know mm-hmm. that that's that's certainly the narrative of the song yeah yeah um and you know that's that's uh that's the job hmm. is 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 making the song feel like it's about a very specific person but it's about a collection of people they all are for me i don't you know the last song on the album letting you go is very very much about one person it's about my daughter and about my uh life you know with my wife and my daughter but but almost all of my songs um i don't like to just write a song about one person because it limits you you know it's it's fiction it's all it's all fiction it's all based on a true story and it's all fiction when you write a song like overseas and you you presumably start with the first line this used to be a ghost town but even the ghost got out you know you, you write a line like that you have a lot to live up to <laughs> uh, yeah and, and how do you how do, yeah. you do you kind of pause and give yourself a little bit of applause and then move on or how, how does that work when you kind of no. get one off what like you that? do what you do is you go back and you go over it 150 times and make sure it's it's as good as you thought it was and not just a stupid platitude you know that <laughs> that's that's what i do is like oh that's really great wait a minute that could be very very stupid because great lines in a song are usually either you know they they they're right on the edge of being meaningless and mm. uh you know especially if it's like a a truism in that way you know where where it's like yeah this this might be true some some people might poke some holes in it but but yeah with that line i thought oh, is that any good does that make sense and and then <laughs> you know after uh, 20 minutes of banging it around in my brain i thought okay we're good we can we can move forward but you know i try yeah i definitely don't pat my myself on the back until i get to the chorus cuz Everybody can write bridges and verses all day long, but a chorus that people will sing along with it still means something is quite a task. Mm. You've said that you you will spend eight hours in a song, especially since you you got sober. You, you kind of you said that you have enough time to to just grind through it. So if you do you have that kind of stamina to to sit for eight hours straight and work on a song, and when you are doing that, are you writing? Are you doing the Leonard Cohen thing of writing extra verses, or well, how does that work for you? Yeah, I do. I do stay there for that long usually, um, and sometimes I, I will write extra verses, and sometimes I'm just going back and moving things around. And you know, uh, the diction of a song and the phrasing of a song musically is really important to me, and I spend a lot of time on that. I think maybe because I started off as a musician uh, and an instrumentalist before I started writing lyrics, it's very important to me that the voice work as an instrument and. That can sometimes get lost in some narrative types of songwriting. But, you know, I, I, I grew up listening to a lot of 80s radio and learning a lot of uh, guitar solos from classic rock music. So it's really important to me that everything is phrased correctly. And that's probably where I spend the majority of my time is making sure things sing right and still mean exactly what I want them to mean. Mm. It's hard to do what you do, which is write pretty literate, detail-packed storytelling lyrics and also make them very musical and phrase right. That That's kind of, that is the trick, isn't it? <laughs> that's that's yeah. one of the hardest things. But, you know, it, it would be harder for me to write an ACDC song, uh, hmm. you know, because I, I have practiced writing these kinds of songs and, and this is the stuff that always attracted me most uh, as a listener. Um, so the hard thing for me would be to write, you know, like a boneheaded rock riff. I couldn't imagine writing back in black, you know. That I think it's all a challenge. It just depends on what you're used to doing. What have I done to him? What have I done to him? What have I done to help is 
kind of a standout in that it feels like a different sound for you. Everything about it from the production to the way you're singing feels pretty different to me. What is the kind of origin of that song? I was driving around. Very often, I'm, I'm driving around the neighborhood by our house, which isn't really a neighborhood. It's just a collection of fields for the most part. But we live out in the middle of nowhere. And so I was driving around and... Uh, you know how sometimes people will sing along to the radio or they'll sing in the shower or something? I do that, but very often it's it's songs that don't exist yet. And when I catch myself doing that, I try to take a note of it. So that's what happened that day. I got I got the chorus uh, for that song, you know, which is really as much of a mantra as it is a chorus. There's not a whole lot going on. It's just a couple of sentences. But I got that, and I recorded it into my phone, and then um, I put it away for a while. Mainly because I thought this sounds so much like a, a Michael Kiwanuka song, and I tried to rearrange it. Up until the day that we recorded that song in the studio, I tried to change the the melody of that chorus to make it sound less like the Michael Kiwanuka song. <laughs> um, and even Dave Cobb helped. You know, we tried everything and we couldn't do it. And I was and, like, "This and you is ended not... up you ended up crediting him." Yeah, I did. Yeah, I got in touch with him and and you know sent him the song. I was like, "Man." I'm just going to pull the Rolling Stones trick on this because that's what they did with uh, with Katie Lang, you know, because uh, has anybody seen my baby sounds so much like Constant Craving mm. um, that, that I think the Stones, they just reached out to her and were like, hey, we're just going to give you some credit uh, <laughs> on this song. And, you know, I thought that was a classy way to do that rather than just put it out and hope nobody notices. So we reached out to him and wound up crediting him. You know, much in the way that you would a sample uh, for a song like that. Um, you know, I, I really, I started out writing that song for a, a movie, and they wanted a, a closing credit song. And I got, honestly, I, you know, kind of hate to say this, but I got about halfway through it, and I thought, I'm not giving them this song. I'm keeping this song. <laughs> I'm going to put this on my own album. I'm trying um, to think what the funniest movie it could have been for. Uh, I think oh, this Sonic right, yeah. the Hedgehog movie would, would be the best. It was, it was for Sonic the Hedgehog. It was. <laughs> It was for the new Farrelly brothers about uh, conjoined stepmothers. No, um, <laughs> it was it was for a good movie, and and but I'm you, not you can't say it, you can't name it. Okay, I probably could, but uh, you know, I, I wound up writing something different for them, and then they didn't use it. Uh, they probably would have used what have I done to help, but I got halfway through it, and I thought, man, I'm just gonna I'm gonna go back to writing this about me and not give it to anybody. <laughs> Now, wait a second. I thought they were all fiction. Yeah, they're all fiction. They are. <laughs> I mean, I think they are because there was a point in the last verse of that song where Amanda, my wife, was like, this isn't really describing us, though. Like, this mm. isn't this isn't how we do things. So I was like, no, no, it's not. It's not describing us. And that was the, that was the conversation. Um, you know, it's, this, it's one of the things that attracted me to songwriting in the first place is, is movies and, and uh, books are all put on a different shelf based on whether or not they're true. And right. songs aren't, you know, songs aren't. They're, they're based on how they sound or, you know, alphabetical order um, uh, for the name of the artist. I mean, that's where they put records. But everything else, they put it in a, you know, it's a documentary or it's not or it's fiction or it's nonfiction. And with songwriting, you can just dance in and out of that however you want. You work with Dave Cobb a few times now, including on, on Stars Born, on albums, on this album. Well, he's obviously very good at what he does. What have you learned most of all about record making from him? I've learned that I'm not a great record producer. Because I used to think that I could I could do it all, and I, ha and I co-produced everything that I worked on until Southeastern. And, you know, I can do it, and... and 
you know, I produced the Josh Ritter record last year, and I think that went really, really well. But Dave's instincts are lightning fast, and they're usually right on. And uh, that's the thing that I appreciate the most about working with Dave, other than just we're friends and we get along with each other and enjoy each other's company. You know, Dave is very quick. I'll bring a song in. Normally, this is how we work. I'll come in with a song finished, and I'll sit down, and I'll play it for the band. And uh, uh, then Dave says, let's try this, let's try that, let's try this, let's try that. And then we go all sit at our different stations, and we play the song. And, you know, Dave is just almost always coming up with something that helps, that, that, that makes it better than it was in my mind. And as long as he's doing that, I think he's doing a great job. You know, he gets down in the in the studio with you. He doesn't he doesn't get behind the glass like like a normal producer would, you know, so you don't feel judged. It's not like he's gonna hold up a card with a number on it, you know. He gets in there and plays guitar, he plays a shaker or a tambourine or something and really participates. Um and I like that a whole lot too. Now you scored uh, David Crosby as a backup singer, which is is not too shabby. What is your relationship with him? He can be, uh, he's hilarious. He can also be really difficult. Uh, you know, he's singing with you, but <laughs> some people who used to sing with him don't want to sing with him anymore. Well, uh, what, what's I, been your experience of him? Da- da- David is like uh, your granddad, if your granddad was like really stoned all the time. <laughs> um, so, you know, he'll call like one o'clock in the morning or something, and he's on the West Coast, so so he's a little earlier than we are. And, uh, you know, he's just, he's really high, and he wants to tell you about an idea, and, and you sit there and you talk to David about his idea, and, and they're usually good ideas, and I always like to hear from David, because he's, he's David Crosby, you know, he's he's brilliant still. I mean, it's amazing you know, with his his mind and his voice, uh, both have held up um, insanely well over all these years. The first time I sang with him was when he come to he came to join us at Newport a few years ago, and and we were one of the headliners. So they want you to to bring somebody in uh, as a guest and uh, somebody who sort of reflects the spirit of the festival. And then we thought about bringing David, and he agreed to do it. And, you know, we were we were rehearsing, warming up backstage, and his voice was so powerful. And, you know, that surprised me because he's not always taking the best care of himself. So I, I asked him, how are you still able to sing like that? And he said, I, I tried everything I could to kill it, but it just won't die. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he, you know, I mean, he can be difficult, I guess, uh, from his own admission, but but he's just been nothing but friendly to us. A guy who's not on this album, uh, sadly, but uh, seems to be a fan of yours is, is Bruce Springsteen. I, I know that, I don't know if you just met him the once, but he, he's a fan of your song uh, Traveling Alone, which is a great song and which I guess he sang to you. And I really can, I really can hear Springsteen singing that song. It's really congruent with a lot of kind of ideas he's expressed in songs so I, I understand why he loved it but w- what was that encounter like and, and was that your only encounter with him yeah it was I mean I've seen him play a bunch of times but that was the only <laughs> time that I'd actually spoken to him you know and it was a Dr. John celebration in New York when Mac was still alive and I mean in New Orleans when Mac was still alive and it was right after the uh, Jazz Fest set that Bruce had played a few years back and, yeah and he so Bruce came over straight from the Jazz Fest set and uh came to the theater where we were playing and and warmed up the band led the band through uh i think i think it was uh right place wrong time and came backstage and was hanging out and i just kind of lingered around his dressing room so i thought <laughs> this is my you know this is my chance to talk to the boss and and 
of course, Danny Clench made it happen because Danny makes everything happen. But he's a great photographer, and he's been friends with Bruce for years and yeah. years and years. And and I've known Danny a long time too. And and he was like, "You want to come talk to Bruce?" And I said, like, "Well, yeah, of course I do." You know. And 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 Danny said, like, "Come on over." So he introduced us, and and Bruce said, hey, "You know, I've heard your heard your record. My son brought your record home, and I really like that song." And then he started singing "Traveling Alone." So tired of traveling alone. <laughs> and I was standing there thinking, "I oh, singing my song in Bruce Springsteen." voice and and then it was like yeah because he's that's his that's just what comes out of his face naturally you know um but he, he was he was super sweet and danny took a picture i've got it up at the house um of us shaking hands you know yeah i was beside myself i mean he's bruce springsteen you know he's, he's, he's really he lived up to all the hype um and you know, he comes from a time when it was possible for people to write those kind of songs and sell millions of records and sell out arenas. And yeah, it was it was a pretty special thing for sure. It is that weird thing. And I've talked about it with uh, Justin Tanzero, who I think is a friend of yours. I feel like the, your song Last of My Kind touches on a little bit. In a, in a way, people who do something like what you do, you're a little bit of a, a man out of time. Because yeah, I mean, your, your kind of music... Uh, might have been ten times bigger uh, in, in a different era. I mean, you're you're plenty big, but might have been, yeah, might have been. But I mean, you know, I'm not somebody who wants to go back to any kind of traditional musical format because there's a there's a lot in that question that that I think people overlook. And you know, I remember once I was in New York and and. It was one of the times when I actually talked to one of the guys selling mixtapes, which is usually a big mistake. You know, <laughs> you know, most of the time it's like the the Mitch Hedberg joke where he says the people handing out flyers are saying, "Will, will you throw this away for me?" It was kind of like that. But I was feeling it that day, and I stopped and I talked to the guy, and uh, I had a guitar on my shirt. I actually had one of my guitars on my shirt that day, and uh, and the guy was like, "Oh, you play the guitar?" And and you know, I, I said, "Yeah," and and, and he said. You know, when I grew up, uh, I didn't have anybody around who played the guitar. I didn't see a guitar, you know, until I was older. I didn't, you know, no, we didn't have any music programs or anything like that. It was just a black dude who'd grown up in the city. And, and uh, you know, it just occurred to me, it's like there's something really, I think, ignorant about uh, longing for a time when people played their own instruments, quote, unquote, because they're they're making instruments out of what they had to work with and what they learned on. And for them, instruments are pieces of music, you know, and they didn't grow up with an uncle who played the electric guitar in a southern rock band like I did and <laughs> gave me an electric guitar when I was a kid and showed me how to play Leonard Skinner songs, you know. That just wasn't an option for a lot of young folks now uh, across the board, just no matter what culture they're coming from. So I, I find it a little ignorant to say, you know, we need to go back to a traditional type of this or a traditional type of that. I, I think the the better move for people like me who uh, are just predisposed to making a more traditional type of music is is not to forget how many people there are in the world and to actually get out and do the work and find those people who appreciate it. That being said, yeah, if I'd come along in the 70s, I probably would have been a much bigger star and when I had a lot more money and I would be dead. I would I would be dead, <laughs> Jesus, you know. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned Justin Earl. I mean, he he definitely would be dead. He's almost dead now, you know. Um so yeah, had we been bigger at a certain point in time, um 
yeah, it would not have turned out well. I mean, more is not always better. Uh, and there are plenty of people out there in the world. I, I, I keep touring and, and, you know, drawing big audiences. And I think it's because I actually give a shit uh, whether they're there or not. And I know how hard it is for people to buy a ticket and go see a show or buy an album. To me, it's just a matter of working harder if you're somebody in my position, working harder, you know, and then things will sort themselves out. Do you lose patience then with some of the assumptions around the the quote unquote Americana genre and, and what people think that is and or just even the very idea of it? Yeah, you know, I don't know that I lose patience. I just I would do things a little differently. I would broaden all the umbrellas if it was up to me, you know, and, and try to be as inclusive as possible because, you know, whether it's a, a genre of music or, or a political party or you know, a church or, or a little league baseball team. I feel like you're going to be more successful if you allow more ideas in and more styles and more ways of doing things in. And and I think, honestly, all music is roots-based. I think to argue that acoustic music or folk music or, or some sort of like a classic rock folk hybrid is more roots-based than hip-hop or even pop music is is a fallacy because you know they all have roots somewhere it's just the roots that you want to track down are the ones you're the most interested in um i think it's kind of a a discredit to other types of musicians to say that their work is not based on some kind of root it's interesting to place you know they're not exactly about the same thing but to to place last of my kind against uh maybe it's time the great song you wrote from a star is born which some uh, that song's about a lot of things but it, it is you know you could look at it that way that you know maybe it's time to let the old ways die i'm glad i can't go back to where, where i came from i'm glad those days are gone gone for good it, 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 there's an anti-nostalgia thing t- to it that's that's interesting yeah and that song's a bit subversive to be you know on a big movie soundtrack like that that's something i was really proud of that's song sort of has a punk rock ethos to it at, at the heart of the lyrical story of that song um but you know last of my kind was a that's a character song i mean i i didn't come to the big city as a hayseed you know <laughs> right uh, um, uh, and it's funny because like when i go back and play in in memphis where i went to college and i played that song and some of my old college friends were there and <laughs> they're like and it wasn't like that yeah no yeah one guy's wife was like did you do that to him oh my god you were awful you know and i was like no he didn't do that to me i'm not you know arnold schwarzenegger is not the terminator he's not really the terminator um (laughs) but people don't go around asking him hey can you can you do the thing where you peel half your face off and your eye glows red (laughs) well i I think i think again it's the uh, novelistic level of detail uh, in your songs that, that sometimes can uh, throw people awry, you know? Yes, and that is the job. That is the job. You want it to sound like you, always, you know? So there's pieces of you in there, and if you choose the right details uh, and, you, and you, you, know, you paint them in the correct light, then people are going to look at that and they're going to think, this person knows what he's talking about. That's called being a writer, you know? That's, that's not, uh, it's not all just, just documenting. I want... We were talking about Dave Cobb. We were talking. He actually was the person who hooked you up with Stars Born. Uh, although hooked up, it might be the wrong word because it seemed like you had some reluctance to get involved. You kind of closely studied uh, yeah. the script and and had some. You wanted to make sure what exactly? 
Yeah, I mean, before I read the script or anything, I thought this sounds like a terrible idea to remake A Star is Born again. And, you know, the one with, with Barbara Streisand and Christopherson, as much as I love both of them, <laughs> not, a, not a great movie. That's not a great movie. Um, it was a big hit, but, like, the ending is just maudlin, you know. Uh, so I was thinking, man, this is going to be a disaster, and I don't know if I want to give them a song. And uh, on top of that, I was just finishing up the Nashville Sound, and I'd been writing a lot for a long time, and I just didn't feel up to it. And yeah, you know, thanks, Dave, but I don't know if I have anything for that. And of course, my wife Amanda was like, "You're an idiot. <laughs> You're an idiot. You got all these songs laying around. Just take one of them and finish it up, and take it in." And so that's what I did, and they, and they turned out turned out great for me. Um, you know, that's. I'm sure the biggest project I'll ever be a part of is in terms of how well it sold. And it was fun. I mean, I, I had a good experience all the way around. I met Bradley, and and uh, he came to some shows, and we hung out a bit. And, you know, he's a good guy and good director. And, you know, Gaga called me uh, while I was feeding my daughter dinner one afternoon. Amanda was working on her master's thesis. She was at Sewanee um, and she was almost done with her master's thesis, and I think it had, she had like two weeks left before it was uh, judged. And uh, she said, I'm going in the bedroom. I'm locking the door. Don't open the bedroom door under any circumstances. It's like, okay, I won't bother you. So I was feeding her daughter. She was in the high chair, and, and uh, it was a couple of years ago. She, she was about two or a little bit younger, and and. Uh, um, at the end of the meal, I was just giving her peanut butter with a spoon because I didn't know what she was eating it, so I was giving it to her. And the phone rang, and it's like, hey, Jason, this is Stephanie. And uh, I thought, oh, no, who's Stephanie? And she said, Gaga. I was like, Stephanie Gaga. And then it hit me. Oh, shit. Um, I was like, hey, wh- uh, what are you doing? She said, we're recording your song in the studio. I'm here with Dave, and it sounds really great. And, you know, we, we appreciate you writing such a beautiful song. So well, thanks for calling. And she said, what are you doing? I said, I'm feeding my daughter peanut butter with a spoon. <laughs> and uh, and then for some reason, I thought it would be hilarious just to put them on the phone with each other. So I said, like, you want to talk to her? And uh, Stephanie was like, um, okay. And so I just handed them my my two-year-old the phone and and they talked for a while of course my two-year-old could say gaga really well so that helped (laughs) i knew it was going there yeah yeah i mean it it was that's that's what happened but uh but after that my wife was like why didn't you come get me you fucking asshole and and i said well you told me not to open the door no matter what happened so i was just following orders (laughs) now in the song uh, letting you go you project yourself into the into the future i guess and imagine a, a wedding yeah it's gonna happen i think at some <laughs> point i you know i got a little ways to go but um but that is a, a terrifying thing for a father i think to imagine you know and i remember when my father-in-law walked my wife down the aisle you know when he got up to me he just stood there and stopped and just would not hand her over and uh, <laughs> <laughs> at the time i was like come on terry Come on, here we go, buddy. Let's get the show on the road. But now I think, man, I'd, I'd probably do the same thing. Um, and I have this kind of theory about about raising a daughter that's just it's personal to me. It's probably not not necessarily true for everybody, but it seems to me like if she does wind up with a man, which I don't know, if, I don't know if she will or not. I kind sure. of hope she would. Hope she wouldn't. But uh, if she does, <laughs> I have to deal with a bunch of shit ass teenage boys. Uh, the you know, she's going to um, tolerate more if I 
misbehave. If I'm not a good husband uh, mm. to her to her mother, she's going to look at me and she's going to think, well, this this is not so bad because I love my dad and my dad did this. And uh, and so part of my responsibility as a father is to be a good husband and just to be a good person because um, the things that I do, uh, you know, are going to be to some extent uh, forgivable or, or even excusable from a girl's perspective when she grows up and sees other guys do that. So, you know, if I don't want to deal with a, an asshole driving up in the driveway to pick her up to go to prom, then I can't be an asshole myself. That is smart. I would say that Letting You Go, which is a beautiful song, a couple things about it. First of all, it, it does feel like, you know, someone mainstream in Nashville could cover it and, and make it a, a big big country song. I don't know if you, you've thought of it that way. I didn't really think of that. No. I mean, I, I have heard that before. Uh, <laughs> you know, and <laughs> and they do. Sometimes they cover my songs, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, cover Me Up has become uh, a big one for, for folks around town, for, for actual country singers to, to cover, and I, I like that a lot. I always like hearing it in different interpretations. Um, but no, you know, I, I wanted to write that song for her, and I also wanted to write it for other parents, you know, just to let them know that that's that there's somebody else out there thinking that too, you know. And it's, you know, especially if for, for people who have kids, it, it falls into the broad category of your tearjerkers. You have, I'm sure you know, you have a lot of songs that uh, are just heart-wrenching and hard to call them anything else. They're, they're tearjerkers. They will make you cry. I mean, Elfin is probably the, the most extreme example of an incredible yeah. sadness. But do you, <laughs> do you sort of get off on making listeners cry? Is that a thing that's pleasing to you, a sign of success? Well, that or making them laugh, just making them do anything. You know, if you can make somebody make some type of noise unintentionally, like uh, you're doing a pretty good job as a songwriter. But there's something about the sad songs to me that, it's it's not just sad, you know, and I know this is kind of obvious, but, you know, there's a resilience there, and I think that's what really affects people. That's what really makes people um, feel moved by these songs. It's not just that I'm painting a picture of something dark or something uh, lonely. I think it's because there there are people who insist on pushing through and insist on surviving and insist on doing their best despite what's happening to them or because of them. And I think that's where people really get moved because that is sort of at the heart of the human experience. I mean, the only goal that we all have that we can all agree on is survival. And, and sometimes that can be incredibly difficult. And, and getting over these things like, like an elephant, you know, a cancer death or in vampires, uh, the, the idea of, of life and love being finite, um, you know, somehow uh, yeah, pushing through. That's a tough one. Through, <laughs> that's a yeah, tough one. No, sorry. That's a tough yeah. one. But it's like somehow pushing through those things and thriving despite it, I think, is probably about as human as a theme can get uh, from my perspective. So I'm drawn to those things. And I really just write about things that I'm interested in. And, and there's nothing more interesting than perseverance, um, if you ask me. Now, I would... I wouldn't say that you ever cross the line of being manipulative, but is that something you're aware of where it's like, it's almost like a Hollywood director. You don't want to go too far because you can, George Lucas once said, I know how to affect an audience, just, you know, show it a sweet puppy and then kill it. And then everyone will be yeah. sad, you know? So it works. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it works. But yeah, it's true. I remember reading uh, Tom T. Hall's songwriting book a long time ago and he talked about how, 
you know, you can be angry without being bitter and you can be emotional without being maudlin. And there's a line there because if you cross that line, then you weaken your own perspective and you weaken your own stance. And and painting a true factual picture, an honest picture of how life can be, if you do it right, that should be moving enough and you shouldn't have to go into tropes or cliches. And I think, you know, pandering in that way is a, is a cliche in itself. And, you know, usually when I'm editing or when my wife is helping me edit a song, you know, we look for cliches and, and try to do away with them unless we're using them in a way that's that's new. And, and yeah, I don't, I'm not trying to get people to respond in a certain way. I'm just trying to trying to communicate with them and make them understand a certain thing that's going on in my brain. Are there songs by other people that make you cry? Oh, God, yes. Yeah, tons, tons of them. I can't listen to uh, Hello in there, uh, the John Prine song. Mm. Yeah, I've heard I've heard it, I mean, a thousand times. I've heard John play it on stage. You know, we've done so many shows together. But if it comes on in the car, I still have to pull over. It's just, it just <laughs> tears me up. It mm. does. Almost, almost talking about it gets me. Yeah. And, you know, John was like 20 or 21 when he wrote that. What the fuck, man? Yeah. What other ones? Um, let's see. What else really gets me? Uh, <laughs> let me see here. Um, the, one of my wife's songs, Mineral Wells, about about where she grew up and mm. her her family when she was a kid. That one gets me a lot. You know, there's a, obviously I understand a lot of context in that one, but that one really gets me. In Hope the High Road, you sing that you know there's got to be more of us than there are of them. Uh, how are you feeling about that right now? Are you feeling like, uh, not to literalize it too much, but I'm interested, just based particularly on who you are and your background, whether you think that uh, Trump is going to get reelected in in, uh, in November. Well, you know, he, I don't, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not ready to say how I feel about whether or not he's going to get reelected yet, because I feel like our job right now is to just to keep working and. Uh, I still feel like that line is true. I, I still feel like there are more of us. But by us, I mean good people who are trying to do the right thing. Um, I don't mean Democrats or liberals or progressives or anything like that. I mean good people. And, and sometimes you can trick some good people into doing some stupid shit. Um, that being said, you know, I, I think he has the advantage of momentum. I think he he and his his cohorts have made people feel comfortable in their biases and uh you know have have made a lot of Americans feel like it's okay to be afraid of certain groups and uh, it's okay to let that fear manifest itself as as anger and judgment and uh I think that puts us at a at a fairly big disadvantage but uh you know I'm not I, I mean somebody else's uh, opinion of what's going to happen in the election, it, it's not going to affect my um, desire to do the right thing, because I've got to go to sleep at night. And I, and I think that's probably a, a good way for people who are on the left or people who feel like they're open-minded or progressive to, to view the Trump presidency and, and the potential re-election is, is, you know, whether or not he gets re-elected, it's not changing the right thing. The right thing is still the right thing. So we have to do what we can to to do the right thing, no matter what. Do you feel like you have any particular insight 
from your somewhat unique position as a, not entirely unique, but as a, a progressive who grew up in, in Alabama, progressive white guy from Alabama, do, do you feel like that gives you some insight on, on just what happened here in the Trump era? Uh, don't look to me for answers, man. I don't know what happened. Um, <laughs> I'm not the guy that can tell you what the hell happened just now. But um, I know more people that, that, that grew up out in the country in Alabama than most, I guess. But, you know, what do I really know about them? It's, it's I mean, we, we all have some type of bubble. And the family that I was in, they were, they were open and accepting and kind and generous and, and uh you know, so that's my bubble. I, I grew up in a bubble of good people, and, and I hate that that has to be a bubble nowadays, but I guess I just haven't seen uh, as much as, as some people have because I didn't expect Trump to get elected in the first place. Did white man's world get under any anyone's skin? Did you get any sense of backlash from any part of your audience from that song? Uh, not much. I mean, a little bit, but not much. Um, yeah, it, it really wasn't a big deal some people go to the bathroom during that song at the shows but but that's about <laughs> it you know that's about it <laughs> what i started doing i started playing outfit right after white man's world so if you went to the bathroom during white man's world you would miss outfit which is almost certainly your favorite song from my category if you're the kind of person who went to the bathroom during white man's world good trick yeah, yeah. now the song be afraid seems to be about a musician who's somehow losing their way. What can you say about about writing that song? Yeah, I think it is about it's about somebody who's wrapped up in in their own success too much to actually venture outside that and you know attempt to do something more with their platform. And uh, there are a lot of those. It's not necessarily about one person in particular, but maybe it's about the fear that I have. Uh, of becoming that person, you know, who takes their platform and only uses it to make a bigger platform for themselves. And yeah, I think that's really dangerous on a personal level and on a on a a, a public level. I think if you um, are lucky enough to have a lot of people listening to you, then you need to do some studying and and do some speaking out, you know, because it's you know that we're not all free at this point. We don't we don't all have the same rights and the same privileges and until that happens you know i think that people who do have a lot of privilege are, are um, responsible for using that to help level the playing field you know this idea of you know earning your own way in the world and and you know everybody is living with this potential and and the potential is all equal is is not it doesn't make much sense to me i think um it's very obvious that where I grew up, you know, for a while there, I thought that I'd grown up poor, but I got a little bit older and looked back and thought, man, there, I had a lot more than some people, a lot more than most people in all honesty. And, you know, in, in America, unless you grew up in the dirtiest possible part of a major city or in a cardboard box on a reservation, you did not come from the bottom. And uh, on a global scale, it's even worse. I mean, there are people who start their life out on a pile of trash outside of New Delhi, you know, and their whole life is digging through somebody else's trash and trying to make a living out of it. And, and you know, when I hear an American say that they came from the bottom, I think, no, no, you did not come from the bottom. Unless you came from that particular pile of trash outside of New Delhi, uh, you didn't come from the bottom. There, there are people who, who, you know, they don't, their mothers don't even get enough nutrition to carry them to term. So there are people who die of starvation before they're even born. And to me, that you know, understanding that um, 
it tells you that it's not all merit-based. Everything is not merit-based. And the success that we have in this country is not always based on how hard you work or how smart you are. There are very smart, very hardworking people out there who never get a chance. And, you know, once you see that, you feel like, well, I have all these things, partially due to the fact that I've worked really hard and tried to be smart about it. But, you know, I started out in a position that made it possible for me to gain all these things. Um, so I, I feel a responsibility to use that to try to help other people, you know, get to that level starting point. Now, it, I'll see if I can squeeze this in before they throw us both out of our studios. But what's great about the song, It Gets Easier, is it, it hits uh, the subject of sobriety from a direction that I'm not sure I've seen a, a song hit before, which is kind of the long-term thing of it and how even years later, it's still something you're dreaming about. It's still there. It gets easier, but it doesn't get easy. I've heard people say it. I don't know if I've heard people sing it. Yeah, you know, I, I'm interested in things like love and and relationships and uh, recovery from a long-term perspective. Um, Because I've been married for seven years now. I've been sober for eight. And, uh, you know, I feel like people write a lot about the spark or about the initial decision or the, the, uh, uh, the first stages of love or, or of recovery or of, you know, life-changing events or, you know, all that happens. You write about the funeral, you know, you don't write about 30 years later uh, after dad's been gone. Um, mm. And I, I'm interested in how those things still affect us, you know, because I'm always looking for ways to come at subject matter that, you know, ways that haven't been explored before. And, you know, it's easy because... For me, I've I've been sober for eight years, so it's easy for me to write about what it's like to have been sober for eight years. And the fact of it is, you still think about it. And you still wish that you had that crutch sometimes. You know, I feel pretty resolved that I'm not going to have a drink today. But at the same time, I don't know what's going to happen in a couple of hours, you know. Yeah, that's uh, and you know it's it's just such a small thing that you started the song with just the, the dream of just you know just having a glass of wine. <laughs> it's just a simple human yes. thing. You know? Yes, which never was possible for me. That's something my wife can do, and I'm very very envious of that because uh, you know she can just have one and then go to bed and leave some of it in the glass even, which to me is just how is that possible? Like when we would leave restaurants, um, you know, if she still had alcohol in a glass, I would. What are you doing? You know, stand up and drink it before we walked <laughs> yeah. out. You know, uh, like that's liquid gold. You can't you can't just leave that in a glass. There's there are starving kids in Africa who don't have any wine at all, and you're going to leave that <laughs> sitting in the glass. But um, you know, that's just never been the case for me. And I do still have those uh, slip dreams, as Crosby calls them. He has them too, I think, at this point. But usually, it's like I'll dream that I just had a drink. You know, I never dream of that point where. You're making the decision again. I always dream that I just had one. And I'm like, what the hell did I just do? I, I can't believe I just drank that. Why didn't I stop myself? You know? Mm. I mean, when. Because it's not when, the drinking. It's when, not the drinking that you want to, to have again. It's the having drink. <laughs> you know? Right. I don't want to drink again. I just, but I would love to have just had two drinks. That would be great. I mean, it's it's interesting when you have someone like Crosby in your life because, I mean, however bad things got for you, few people had it worse than him. I mean, he, yeah, he really went to some dark places. Things probably got worse for David than they did for me, I would imagine. Um, 
And, uh, you know, he burned a lot of bridges, and he'll be the first to admit that. But, you know, the David that I met well, was not the David that Neil met or, or that, that Stephen Stills met or, you know, whatever that Joni met. You know, the, the David that I met was a different different person and had put a whole lot of work into becoming that person. And, you know, he's he, he's an old man, but most of the time he's spot on. Um, just like the rest of us, he's not always uh, right, but, uh, but there's a lot of wisdom uh, to be gleaned from somebody like David Crosby. And on top of that, I mean, I learned how to sing harmony parts from, like, you know, eating cow shit mushrooms and laying on somebody's trailer floor listening to the Crosby, Stills, and Nash record and trying to figure out what the hell he was doing. So it's 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 a big deal. Mm. And uh, finally, so, you know, with a record in a can, are you writing? Do you take time off from writing? How do you kind of handle that? I've started again, you know, I I think the next thing that I do, and I may change my mind, but but the next thing I do I feel like is going to take a lot of time and a lot of composition. So I don't want to just sit down and start playing a G chord and, and writing songs that way anymore. So I've started working on just pieces, pieces and parts, and, and saving those, demoing those, and, and trying to put them together. But, but I, I don't feel pressure to write a lot right now because I still have some time, and I've got to go out and, and you know play these songs uh, and see how they change over, over the course of touring. And, you know, I love reunions. I love that record. I think we did a great job with it, and I still ride around listening to it in the car. I was listening to it on the way in here today. Um, and I'm really proud of it. I think it's it's the most consistent work that we've done, you know, and I think that like song by song, it's it's as strong as any album that we've put out in the past. So I'm really excited to see how people respond to it. Yeah, man. Well, thanks uh, very much for being here. It was great talking with Thank you. Thank you, Brian. Appreciate your time. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Download us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to us as a podcast. Maybe leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. But as always, thanks for listening, and we'll definitely see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was a three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord. We get it. They have chemistry. Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.